You're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'm Billy Lennon. Today, I'm talking with Chapman Cadell about his piece, View from the Couch, Success, the Topeka School, and a Fan's Notes. We talk about fiction as criticism and vice versa, careerist fiction, Ryan Ruby's essay about the golden age of criticism, profound experiences of art, Jonathan Swift somehow, Spanish language literary criticism, and a path forward for contemporary fiction carved by losers, question mark. Chapman Cadell is a writer in San Francisco. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'm talking with Chapman Cadell about his piece that he wrote in mid-November for us, View from the Couch, Success, the Topeka School, and a Fan's Notes. Uh, Chapman, how's it going, man? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, of course. What One of the things we talk about at CRB is that, you know, we don't just have a commitment to publishing criticism, but we're committed to like pushing the boundaries of what criticism can be. And your piece push the boundaries of what it means to do precisely that. <laughs> Could you maybe like talk like broadly about what the both like what the the topic of the 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 piece is and maybe what preoccupations led you to write it? I started reading Ben Lerner in college. Um, I think the first thing I read was the first novel he wrote, Leaving the Atocha Station, which I was intrigued by at the time. And then in 2019, which is I think when the Topeka School came out, um, I went to a talk by him, which was interesting and informed some of my thinking in this piece. I think I actually maybe quote from that talk. He gave it was in San Francisco City Arts and Lectures. He was talking to Maggie Nelson, and then after that, I read Ten O Four, which I didn't like as much as Leaving the Atocha Station at the time. I think I respect it a bit more now. And then after that, I read The Topeka School. Um, so obviously, it's been on my mind for a long time. I guess the piece is pretty critical of Ben Lerner. Um, that would be hard to miss, um, but I think he's interesting. Um, part of why I wanted to write about him is that I think he's one of the most talented pro stylists working in America today. And it's more interesting to grapple with someone's work you don't necessarily like um, when you think they're extraordinarily talented, um, as Ben Lerner is. And then the other thing that went into this piece was a fan's notes by Frederick Exley, which I read after having read um, all of Ben Lerner's prose, prose work, which includes The Hatred of Poetry, his nonfiction essay, um, which builds on a lot of ideas he sort of gestures toward in leaving the Atocha station. I guess a fan's notes with a, was a breath of fresh air. I don't really know how to... <laughs> It's not, he, he doesn't, Frederick Exley is not someone who has the kind of, I mean, the amazing thing about Ben Lerner is he has this incredible like rhythmic control. Um, I think some of it comes from his experience with debate. Um, some of it comes from talent. I think he would be resistant. He's kind of resistant to um, the discourse of 
<laughs> talent or genius, the great American novel, what have you. But he obviously is very talented. And I mean, he's obviously a very good reader. Um, and Exley was not someone, was certainly not someone who was as talented as Ben Lerner. And certainly is not as good of a guy as Ben Lerner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. he's miserable. He's a bastard. Um, but he wrote this really beautiful book. And I would say that Ben Lerner still hasn't written a book that is worthy of his talent. So I was interested in exploring that. And I was interested in using the lens of autofiction, even though I don't really have a problem with autofiction. At all, I was talking about a very specific kind of autofiction. Yeah, you kind of a. I mean, we'll get to this later, but you oppose it to Exley's like fictional memoir style. Uh, it, just a quick note on leaving the Atosha station. I would say, like for like a twenty first century like lit bro, is basically our portrait of the artist as a young man. I'd say <laughs> that's possible. I, I mean, I on, honestly, I think we've all had that experience with it. Trying to have the. Uh, the authentic experience of art or whatever. Like, yeah, the- I have kind of a, so I, I really enjoyed it the first time I read it. I think I was a junior in college and I was in an airport in Colombia, and I was really struggling with my Spanish and I was reading mm-hmm. this guy. I think he was Ben Lerner in his thirties when he wrote it, early thirties, late twenties. Can tell you probably yeah, he has a, yeah he has a very undergraduate perspective you know I connected to it like I think a lot of <laughs> sort of <laughs> you mentioned portrait of the artist as a young man um, yeah I think I think there's something to that at least in its cultural resonance and the way it would appeal to a certain kind of like high achieving young person who went to Vassar yeah yeah <laughs> but then I revisited it um and actually i wrote some of this piece when it was really weird i was um in madrid for a little bit and i was staying in an attic apartment which is i think like just a couple blocks away from his i mean it could have been the same apartment and it didn't resonate with me as much actually we went to and whether it resonates or not with a particular person doesn't really say anything about its quality. But I had kind of the opposite experience where I went to the Prado and they were doing this amazing uh, Picasso El Greco exhibit where they put a few really spectacular Picassos next to a few really great El Grecos. And I love El Greco. And I was with my girlfriend and she started crying uh, um, in the museum. And she hasn't read Leaving the Atocha Station. I mean, I don't know. I could have cried. I didn't, but it was profoundly moving. We went back to the Prado just to see these two paintings next to each other, um, which you can't see anymore. The exhibit's over. (laughs) A gap opened up between my understanding of sort of this Adam Gordon character at the time and who I am now, um, which again, doesn't really have to do with the work itself but definitely conditions my response to the work. And I remember when I read Leaving the Tocha Station the first time, I liked it so much, I got it for my dad for Christmas. And he read it and he said to me, (laughs) he didn't like it because the narrator seemed like such an asshole. (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> and of course, I had read it identifying with um, yeah. Gordon. But he said, the thing is, though, I'll give him this. He writes almost perfect prose. And there's something to that. There's something to that. I, I don't think Adam Gordon's such an asshole. I think he'd be more likable if he were a little bit more of an asshole in some ways, but which I kind of get into in the piece. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to get to the the form of your 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 piece in, in a second. But yeah, kind of your, like your thesis on Ben Lerner uh, is that his fiction is kind of like, like imagine the kid who gets a 2400 on the SAT or 1600 now, like, you know, just get gets 36 on the English portion of the ACT, like gets, I mean, that's what Topeka school is about, like debate. Um, just like this whiz kid writing this perfect prose and like representing this uh, ideal, like liberal intellectual went to an Ivy League school those notions of what that means just represented in like that kind of prose i think you said at some point like it's not really about the the, the narrative here or I, I don't know but you you called it like careerist fiction um par excellence i believe i think something that's interesting particularly um i guess for people who are listening who haven't read leaving the utoja station the First scene, pretty much the first scene, it starts in his apartment, um, is his going to the Prado and watching a guy cry in front of a painting. Um, and he's having what he calls, what is it? It's a profound experience of art, something yeah. like that. And he is struggling to understand how someone could have this kind of response to art. Um, and... Ben Leonard said elsewhere that Adam Gordon in Leaving the Atocha Station is kind of an exaggerated version of himself. Um, but not that exaggerated. When you read The Hatred of Poetry, you get a sense that Adam Gordon's ideas about poetry are very close to Ben Lerner's. Um, some of it feels almost directly lifted from Leaving the Atocha Station. But it's hard to understand on some level why that guy wants to write <laughs> you know what what attracts him to the novel i mean sometimes it feels a bit like the novel is resume um, it's just like what smart people do they write novels i don't know i think that's just that's so alien to the way in which i think about fiction um i mean especially the way in which i think about poetry i mean it's important to remember that before he ever writes fiction he's a poet which couldn't be more distant from say the career track that takes you through consulting firms, right? It's difficult to understand what the attraction is for the 2400 kid, right? Who's never really let go of those preoccupations. And those preoccupations in the Topeka school are very clearly still there. Anyways, but speaking about fiction, um, I really want to get to this. Let's talk about the form of your piece, which kind of alternates you, you know, like you talk about this, you write your own fiction as a way, as an entry point into to the piece. It's different than, you know, your typical work of criticism where, you know, you'll, I love book forum or, or, or our stuff, you know, you kind of like delineate your object of study, you, you analyze it, you make bold claims about the world at large, you bring it back to the text 
we all you know say goodbye and move on like having taken something <laughs> you write this like fictional thing where you and a bunch of people are like going into this cafe where this unnamed writer who went to brown aka ben lerner like comes in and everyone calls him king king providence and then providence prov- <laughs> right, yeah, exactly <laughs> Which he uh, often he often refers to as time at Brown as the time he spent living in Providence, especially in Total yeah. War. No, and it's, it's kind similar, of infuriating. It, well, it's also <laughs> similar to uh, like in The Great Gatsby. Like if you go to Yale, like you don't say you're going to Yale, you say, "Oh, I'm going to New Haven." Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, so I'm. I I, I want to ask, like, you know, uh, Zach, our editor in chief, gave me a question to ask you, which I think encapsulates what I would want to ask you naturally, but I'm going to defer to him. So I'm going to read his question, which is regarding Chapman. I would love to hear him talk about the meta fictional frame around his piece and how he was thinking about form when writing slash conceiving it. Like what do fiction slash imaginative writing techniques offer criticism? What kind of thinking is possible in that form? Well, he had another point, also professionalism and dunking on learner, but that's kind of what we just talked about. For that's, that's a bit what we were talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I, even though I write criticism, I don't, I struggle to think of myself as a critic. Um, so I found what was for me the most natural way into this piece. And it may seem unnatural. <laughs> it may seem odd. Um, but writing criticism does not, does not come easy to me. And I guess most of the critics I really admire were fiction writers, were or are, too. Um, for instance, one of my favorite works of criticism is Nabokov's book on Gogol. I think if you're interested in understanding Gogol um, is essential, but also for understanding um, physicality in fiction. And I had actually wanted to talk about that work in this essay, but at some point you're at 8,000 words. <laughs> There's only so much you can talk about. How many words was it in the end? Um, I think it came out to a little under 8,000. Um, I, I sent Philip Philip Harris, who edited his piece, about 1,000 1, more words. So this was cut significantly. Yeah. And I had cut before sending it to him, too. Um, especially because I wanted to talk more about Frederick Excel. I mean, I wish I, had, I wish I had a better answer for you. Can I say I what I thought about? Uh, please do. Please I got do. you, bro. I got you. Dude, no worries, man. I'll I'll ta- tag me in. So, you know, like Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, you know, like, like the di- like dialectic, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, to like simplify it completely, it's like, you know, you have A, B, C, like third thing, you know, like the triad, you know? Uh, so, if you like trace the lineage of that, like people would say like, oh, Socratic dialogue, but there's actually a specific book written by Den- De- uh, Denis Diderot, Denis Diderot called Rameau's Nephew, which is a fictional book uh, that is like the direct influence on Hegel's phenomenology and his method. And I don't, mm, I can't remember like the specifics, like what the characters, there's, there's two characters, like, Rameau's nephew and some other guy it might be Rameau I, I can't remember but they each like represent like two specific like points of view uh they're, they're that are kind of standing in for like a conflicted Diderot 
And he's using this like fictional discourse conversation to clarify his own thinking on this subject. I th- I feel like this this character of um what's the guy's name? Sergeant Gordy. G. Gordy. I feel like Gordy was a way for you to inhabit a certain critical position to like work against. Mm-hmm. Cause like perhaps you wouldn't have been able to be so forthright and and like critical of learner because because we're always told like how much of a sacred cow he is. And so you create a figure like Gordy who doesn't have any of these values is outside of that rank hierarchy. He's homeless. He can say whatever he wants. And then that maybe like allows you to then like really go for the jugular, so to speak. I don't know. Maybe I'm over reading into that. That was just my. No, no, I I don't think you are. Um, I mean, he pretty explicitly points to a few novels that I think suffer from (laughs) some of the flaws that Ben Lerner's work suffers from and i do not name those novels if you've read them you know at the beginning in the coffee house there are a few people who actually um, shout out things that are taken directly from reviews or novels um sort of reviews that i don't think were very good or were a little intellectually dishonest and books that i think were maybe overpraised <laughs> I will say a reference for me in putting together this piece is one of my favorite books, if you can really call it a book, which is Tale of a Tub, um, Jonathan Swift's satire from right around 1700, which I think is probably the greatest satire in the English language. And he was an interesting reference because I think Swift has probably the greatest rhythmic control of any English language writer ever. Even better than Beckett, certainly better than Ben Lerner, which I don't think he would contest. Holy shit, (laughs) it claims. He is very comfortable writing sort of against the, uh, what he calls In Tale of a Tub and then Battle of the Books, and they're often published together. Um, The Moderns and a certain writerly set He's very comfortable writing against them, but he's always using a fictional frame and he's also using a pseudonym. I don't know if today it makes sense to use a pseudonym. I think it's a bit of a dodge. Also, Jonathan Swift had a political career to worry about. I mean, an ecclesiastical political career. Yeah, but then Um, you have like, you have like your Kierkegaards and like Pessoas who didn't need to protect their identities, but it was kind of like a generative creative thing, productive thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's a totally different... Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to go... No, 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 no. I mean, because um, so is heteronyms are totally different people. Jonathan Swift is always speaking as Jonathan Swift, for sure. Right? Oh, okay, 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 I see, I see. He's really just trying He's really just trying to protect himself, which I'm not doing. I think I was too explicit about a lot of my criticism to, be, to seem to be protecting myself in any way. Well, I was listening to this podcast called American Vandal that um, Matt Sable does. It's really good. He has this series that he did was called Criticism Limited. And he was interviewing Ryan Ruby. And he was saying that like people are reading like it's it's counterintuitive. Like there's a crisis of the humanities, but it's kind of a golden age of criticism. And it's like becoming more creative people 
like as I can't fully explain the argument right now, mm-hmm. but criticism is getting more creative. And I don't think it's like a, and seen as more of like its own thing, not secondary in and of itself. I, I, that's what I, I think your piece is an example of. I'm just wondering, like, is it, do you view like the fiction as like doing criticism as well? Or is it also like a way to prep you to do the more normal piece, which would have been the, cent- the center of like the body of the text? I, I'm not asking as well. No, no. I actually have a lot of thoughts on this. I don't know if I'll be able to organize <laughs> well for you there's probably another essay but i haven't listened to what you're talking about um with ryan ruby but i did read his thing i think in vinduit about the golden age of criticism um which i thought was interesting i disagree with it in a lot of ways and i don't think we're living through any sort of literary golden age at least in english there's this great book by piglia that i don't think is available in english called fiction and criticism and he is I think sort of the great model of the uh, novelist critic. Um, What's his is, name? Uh, Ricardo Piglia. Okay. Um, and a lot of his fiction does criticism in pretty novel ways, but then he also writes what maybe you could call straight criticism. But he talks about in this book, which is a compilation of interviews, conversations he's had, which have also been augmented and changed in <laughs> various small ways. I don't I don't know to what extent they're not real interviews. But he talks about the critic's drive to the critic who is not a novelist, who is not interested in producing fiction, the critic's drive to eliminate the writer. The writer is artist. Um, because hey, what is a fiction writer? Um, someone who's useless, right? And I think this is part of what maybe rubs me the wrong way about the Topeka School. Um, it's claiming a position for the writer that I don't think the fiction writer can occupy. Um, I think a lot of critics, at least, want to be pursued, want to be perceived as doing something valuable, um, something with a kind of value that's much more easily measured. And so the one problem the critic has is the existence of <laughs> this like leisure time activity that they're supposed to be engaging with. And so it, the Argentine context is really, really interesting because you have a much greater number there, at least just like, if you look at sort of the Argentine canon, you have a lot more people who are both writers and critics. And the one everyone knows is Borges, right? Um, whereas in the United States, there's much more of a, I think, I'd argue there's much more of a divide between, for instance, the novelist and the critic. But Piglia and Borges both faced a lot of antipathy from critic critics, people who are only critics. And what I fear in our literary culture is the basically the abolition of fiction in the service of criticism. So criticism can finally can finally become the autonomous or semi-autonomous. It's kind of a parasitic form, right? Thing that it's always longed to be, that critics have always hoped it could be. Maybe trying to turn criticism into fiction to include something in there that is truly autonomous as a way of kind of fighting back against that. 
even Ryan Ruby, I think, makes the point in that piece. I think. Hopefully, I'm not misattributing this. Um, that a lot of these. I, critics, I gave a very crude reading of it, and oh yeah, yeah. I, I think he does make the point that a lot of the critics he's really excited about are writing about writers who are dead, or at the very least, no longer writing, and that's troubling, to say the least. I'm disturbed by it. I mean, I don't, I don't read to read criticism. You know, I do read criticism, but that's not, I, there are very few works of criticism that have been as rich for me as a great novel. Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of people who would very, very strongly disagree with that. I don't think there's any criticism that rises to that level, unless it can shed in some way, unless it can become something other than criticism. Or some part of it can exist autonomously. Does that does that make sense? And of course, no fiction is autonomous. Um, you're always referencing. You're always working within a tradition. But I mean, I mean, it's like Carver. Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about criticism? <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it means different things to different people. Like some, you know, it means different things throughout different times in history. Could like the shattering of perhaps like this ossified, calcified view of what criticism in your view, like perhaps has become or has historically been morph into something? Well, I think to the point of ossification, because um, I guess you said Zach mentioned something about professionalism and how yeah. we think about professionalism in the context of criticism. I think one of the things that holds criticism back in many ways, at least today, and this is not something that held Jonathan Swift back. An interesting thing about reading Jonathan Swift's um, critical satirical work from when he was young is that many of the people whom he references have been lost to time, including the people he defends, right? But the work can still stand on its own. It has become autonomous because it doesn't limit itself, and in part because it's not professional. I saw a negative review of a book defended not so long ago on the grounds that it was eminently professional. And I don't think you necessarily think the stakes of literature are high enough if you think professionalism is a, is a positive value in criticism. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. So this was a very so, unprofessional uh, review. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's a criticism of criticism. Maybe those are your words. Yeah. <laughs> and for, I don't know. I enjoy a lot and, of criticism. And, and, I don't want to be too harsh, but no, for sure. And but just to do Ruby like a bit of justice. Obviously, it's a a a golden age of criticism because of like the difficult conditions that critics are under. So I, I didn't mean to call it like Panglossian. Just mm -hmm. Ryan, if you're listening to this, I have a more nuanced take. And, and sec <laughs> secondly, though, part of the reason the quality of criticism is so good, at least by these professionalization standards, mm -hmm. is because uh, there is an oversupply of people with these technical literary skills that are being forced out of the academy. So this is how they write and think about literature. And they go into these para-academic and public-facing venues and outlets to produce their work. Um, there are, in turn, more readers of those 
those publications. And so like the whole like modern literary criticism just becomes more like technical and professional and there are more advanced degrees in and around the the discipline or the, the practice, which, yeah, I think it explains some of the stuff that you're kind of like decrying. Absolutely. The literary landscape today, whether you want to talk about criticism or you want to talk about fiction, is so depressingly mediocre and mediocrity is being is sort of obviously mediocre works are being held up as great or at the very least good works now that there's something a little unseemly about celebrating any aspect of our literary culture which is something i think i'm getting at in that first section of the piece mm-hmm. I, I i really just don't think there's anything to celebrate but and and yet and yet you see people celebrating all the time, including people who decry the state of our of our literary culture, right? Um, there's an anecdote I really like, though, in the Pound Era by Hugh Kenner. I think he's talking about Henry James visiting the United States sort of right before the modernist revolution. And he goes to he goes to UPenn and he sees a football game. It's his first time back in the United States in a while, and he asks himself, "Where could the next big thing come from?" Sort of, he sees a totally. He comes to the United States and he sees an intellectual wasteland, right? And he thinks that's kind of it for American letters. And of course, when he's at UPenn. William Carlos Williams is a medical student. Um, Ezra Pound is taking the year at Hamilton College, but <laughs> he was a student at UPenn and T.S. Eliot was in high school. I don't think there's much to celebrate right now, but there could be a lot to celebrate in maybe 10 years. So there's always hope for a kind of renewal, but I, I think you maybe have to start from a place of recognizing the state of the literary landscape as it is. Where do you think the over-eagerness to celebrate comes from? I mean, I think a lot of people are celebrating themselves, right? Some of it's narcissistic. Some of it has to do with the degree to which the arts have made maybe political progress, if you want to look at it that way. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, it's something I wanted to get at in this piece, whether directly or indirectly, is that and maybe this actually ties in a little bit to Ryan Ruby's piece on the golden age of criticism. Um, certainly our novelist class <laughs> has never been better educated. You know, people have never been, at least if you look at degrees, um, maybe there, there's a way in which you could argue that our writers have never been more poorly educated, right? You have so many people who have had excellent undergraduate educations and then they go to graduate school whether a phd or and like, M- like MFA, pro- mfa programs yeah all, and you get all. so many stamps at some point that i think it's hard to imagine for people who have not developed an independent taste that the work that is produced by the people who have passed through all these institutional gatekeepers could be bad you also see certain magazines like 
whether it's in who who they're accepting for publication or the editors that they're hiring they don't they can't trust their own judgment the only the only thing that they see is like went to ivy league school and then as long as that's the case they're in because the reason they're in that position is because that's the qualification they had as well so as long as we like hold to that code we're all good and then the stakes of like being a good novelist are like sweet we have a six-figure salary in healthcare versus like creating good literature <laughs> which is the career it's the careerism and professionalization that you're you're talking about i i just <laughs> use any means necessary to reach like upper middle class bourgeois respectability and comfort but uh i i feel like you're kind of saying like the logic of like literary greatness is just sort of it's related to to, to that somehow um and and you can respond to that, but then I really want to move to like how Exley provides perhaps a way forward for fiction, um, something perhaps like hopeful, not careerist, a foil to this like ideology that we're kind of being fed, sort of center or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a great, just to your point about sort of pursuing a kind of upper middle class bourgeois version of success, which I don't think is just material. Um, it's about being recognized as a success by the people you went to college with, right? <laughs> Who are maybe Bain. It, there's a great essay by Bolaño, and it was one of the last things he wrote, I think called The Myths of Cthulhu. And he criticizes a certain kind of Spanish language writer who seemed to have taken up writing to be able to ascend from the lower middle class to the upper middle class. And the sort of much more normal model today in American letters seems to be the writer who comes from the upper middle class and does everything they can to stay in the upper middle class. And I, I don't just mean I don't just mean financially. I mean in terms of preaching you know, a certain kind of middle-class values, um, affirming those values and doing whatever it takes to continue affirming them. If that is your priority, I think it's really, really difficult to produce great literature. If that is your overriding priority, certainly. Which is which is funny because back to Ruby, uh, the fact that that isn't possible is what's producing great criticism, apparently. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, totally, anyways, totally. But, but so... You want to move on. I disagree with everything you said too. I like. I think. Hey man. Good point, but <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's and on actually, how is he a foil to this careerist thing? Why do you see him as like a path forward for the future of fiction? I mean, he's a loser. I sort of he's if you could define anyone as a loser, you could define Frederick actually as a loser. He is a financial disaster. He is an alcoholic he is it's unclear exactly what was happening to him but he spends a lot of time in mental asylums which is an experience he writes about he is certainly not a success by any bourgeois definition and he's not a success really by most people's definition in spite or really because of this experience he ends up producing a masterpiece as improbable as it may be given his background and his really like world-class laziness um, he turns out uh -huh. to be a pretty good sentence level writer his his sentences are a little 
are a little weird. A lot of long vowels and diphthongs and R's. It's kind of, they're kind of heavy. But he exemplifies the, the possibility of producing something great. I mean, it sounds stupid or it sounds corny, but he doesn't really give in in any way. He doesn't give an inch. He's not making any sacrifices for an audience. And he's not trying to, sort of most importantly, he's not trying to protect his reputation in any way. He's, he's willing to be the from asshole. The teacher. Also, there, I don't remember what the character's name is, but uh, the, the guy whose mom in uh, the Topeka school cared for Adam after the concussion um Darren. The guy Darren yeah yeah the guy who like you know did math and then threw a cue ball at a woman uh like but what he did have that Adam didn't have was this like connection to like the creative and destructive force of language which isn't that dissimilar from like how in leaving the Atosha station he couldn't figure out how a how to have like an authentic experience of art but your girlfriend could just weep at it you know, like this guy is like on the, uh, which like leads to the point of like, why is this guy writing a novel? Whereas um, it's really easy to understand why um, sort of Exley talks. It's funny because Exley talks so openly about his literary ambition, right? His dream is to become a great writer. And he spends all this time sitting on the couch, imagining himself getting awards. He imagines himself doing a lot of other things, including I think, running a hotel on the great lakes it's very awesome. <laughs> it's really it's really a wonderful book um and i think sort of the main motivating impulse behind writing this piece was to get more people to read a fan's notes yeah my friend um, mina tavacoli wrote a good piece about it in book forum I'll read and that. uh my best friend kyle uh gave me that book in high school yeah maybe <laughs> some smart guy will get sick of sports betting and create the future of contemporary literature yeah right seems like that's our notes. i feel like that's more likely than a dartmouth grad yeah i mean our literature is poorer certainly well our literature really is poorer for not really having anyone come out of an underworld but yeah do you want to close on anything and then let's wrap it yeah yeah totally i think the last thing i'd say about excellent i think what's really significant about is willingness to be the bad guy is the fact that he's not the fact that sure he's chasing glory but he's not chasing any sort of professional success it allows him to see people in a way that i don't think ben lerner can without fitting them into a very narrow category or at least in a way that he doesn't in the Topeka school right there there are a thousand darrens in a fan's notes and each one is about a thousand times more human than the Darren we get in the Topeka school. Um, and that's part of what enables it to be a better book. Um, it's much visually richer, for instance. When I say see people, he actually sees people moving in the world, which makes it funnier too. <laughs> Whereas uh, in Lerner, in Topeka school, Adam as a kid has nightmares about the men behind the refrigerators um, in the gas station or the convenience store. At Dylan's, at Dylan's, the grocery yeah, store. Yeah, and 
everyone's trying to figure out like psychoanalyze him like what could that guy represent like alienated labor or uh <laughs> just but he doesn't actually see that that's the main point exactly 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 yeah. well anyways chapman thanks so much for your time man i feel like the piece is so good i feel like we complicated as much as we clarified in a good way <laughs> <laughs> but definitely like definitely write for us again man and um i'm definitely gonna like push for this to be in the next print issue but i mean i've yeah i think it will be but everyone awesome yeah much love to you man have a great rest of your night out on the west coast really great talking to you really yeah, appreciate man. you bringing me on and <laughs> we talk about frederick Exley. hell yeah dude <laughs> more than anything yeah man be well Okay, you too. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Producer and artist A Live of Cleveland's own Noomi Collective graciously provided the music we use for the intro, as well as the music you're listening to right now. We publish reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three times per week. We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes, as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase issues and merch, including hats, tote bags, and shirts in our online store. I'd also like to shout out all of our amazing editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree DeMonda, Robert Giddings, Alana Pakros, Angela Maniage, Morgan Ford, Michael Cardico, Helen Rauner, Jacob Brueggemann, Philip Harris, Allie Black, Isabel Blakeway Phillips, Eli Scope, and R.I. Washington. See you next time.